Good evening. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Chelsea Follett. I'm managing editor of humanprogress.org here at Cato and a policy analyst in the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Um, and I want to thank everyone in attendance, including online. For those here in person at this time, please take a moment to silence uh, your phones and other devices. Our event hashtag tonight is hashtag women debate markets. So please use that on your social media posts. In the spirit of free inquiry and friendly competition in the marketplace of ideas, both to learn from each other and sharpen our own thinking, I'm excited to host this debate tonight. Has the spread of capitalism been a net positive or a net negative for women around the world? Is capitalism an inherently exploitative, oppressive, and patriarchal system entwined with the subjugation of women? Or has it helped to empower women, enhancing their material well-being and fostering gender parity? Advocates of women's welfare disagree on these important questions. As a result, they seek to advance very different economic policies despite a shared commitment to the goal of female empowerment. While I have my own rather passionate views on the matter tonight, I will be acting as an impartial moderator for two scholars, a free marketer and an anti-capitalist, who will debate the question, does capitalism help or harm women? I want to thank our speakers and all of you for joining us for this discussion, which I hope will challenge and enlighten as we explore these important themes. Without further ado, let me introduce our distinguished debaters. Nicole, Dr. Nicole Ashoff is the author of the book, The New Prophets of Capital, which covers a range of topics, including the relationship between capitalism and feminism. Nicole has helped to build and sits on the editorial board of Jacobin Magazine, which offers an American leftist perspective on politics, economics, and culture. Relevant to tonight's discussion, an example of one of her articles in Jacobin was titled, Feminism Against Capitalism. In addition to Jacobin, her work has appeared in publications such as The Guardian, The Nation, and Al Jazeera, among other outlets. Before helping to create Jacobin, she taught for several years at Boston University. She holds a PhD in sociology from Johns Hopkins University, and she also holds a BA in history from Rutgers University. She is currently working on a new book project on smartphones and capitalism, set to be released next year. It's titled The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the Gilded Age, uh, in the New Gilded Age. Dr. Veronique Darugi is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, an adjunct scholar uh, here at the Cato Institute, and a nationally syndicated columnist who has testified numerous times in front of Congress. Veronique authors a weekly opinion column for Creators Syndicate, writes regular columns for Reason Magazine, and blogs about economics at National Review Online. 
Her charts, articles, and commentary have been featured in many outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, C-SPAN, and Fox News. Previously, Veronique has been a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute, and a research fellow at the Atlas Economic Research Foundation. Originally from France, she received her MA in Economics from the Paris Dauphine University and her PhD in Economics from the Pantheon Sorbonne University. This will be structured in a debate style. Each speaker will give their opening remarks for 15 minutes, followed by a five-minute rebuttal from each, and then a shorter three-minute rebuttal with closing statements. After that, each speaker will have the opportunity to ask the other one question and about two minutes to deliver a reply. Then we will open up to questions from all of you in the audience. I hope you enjoy tonight's debate and that it will be thought-provoking and offer an opportunity for civil public discourse in the pursuit of truth and better policies a few final notes before the debate begins. There will be a reception immediately following the Q&A. We ask that audience, remember, that audience members remain quiet for the duration of the debate until our Q&A and to try to hold applause until the end insofar as you can. And I hope you will be respectful of our debaters tonight, even when you disagree, recognizing that they have very limited time to express very uh, complex issues. Once more, I encourage you to join the debate and share your thoughts on social media. Our hashtag again is Women Debate Markets. We flipped a coin backstage uh, prior to this to determine speaker order, and Nicole will be going first. So without further ado, let us begin. Great. Can everyone hear me? Yes? Great. Thank you, Chelsea, for that very generous introduction, and I'll just get started. The question of whether feminism, whether capitalism is good for women is one that both feminists and non-feminists have debated for a long time. But each upsurge of interest in the question is embedded in a particular context. So what are the conditions of the present moment that encourage an exercise such as this? For one thing, capitalism is in crisis, not necessarily an economic crisis, in the sense of a full-blown recession, though there's always tomorrow. Perhaps the ridiculous WeWork IPO will be enough to send the whole thing tumbling. But we have seen more than a decade of stimulus that includes a multi-trillion dollar bailout by central banks, years of quantitative easing, and a new normal of government-engineered low interest rates to keep investors from collectively hurtling themselves off a cliff. Despite these inducements, wages and economic growth are stagnant, Companies seem more interested in rolling the dice on the stock market than brick-and-mortar investment. Moreover, neoliberal capital capitalism, the norms, ideas, and policies that undergird the status quo of the past four decades, is experiencing a deep crisis of legitimacy. There's a widespread loss of trust in government, a waning faith in capitalism, and a resurgence of populism on both the left and the right. A second point of reference for our discussion here tonight is the resurgence of feminism in the past decade, both in the United States and globally. This resurgence has taken a variety of forms and has encompassed a range of perspectives on how best to pursue, pursue a feminist program, 
but it is a persistent feature of public discourse, most recently with the Me Too movement. The defeat of Hillary Clinton in the context of the legitimacy crisis of neoliberal capitalism has thrown the dominant model of neoliberal feminism, the idea that feminist goals can be best achieved by each woman striving to reach a position of power and success within capitalism, into crisis. Increasingly, women, particularly younger women, are calling for a different kind of feminism that often has anti-capitalist undertones and overtones. Polls find that roughly half of young adults profess to prefer socialism over capitalism. And according to a recent Pew survey, 53% of Sanders supporters are women. It is in this context of crisis, which we can view as a moment of change rather than a breakdown per se, that we look forward and ask how feminists should be orienting their positions and their struggles. I say look forward deliberately. Now is the time to both assess hard-won victories and strategize about how to make it possible for all women to actually enjoy them and to push forward with new concrete demands that fulfill the broad aims of feminism. But first, in the service of clarity, a couple caveats. I don't speak for all women, obviously, but nor do I speak for all women on the left or all feminists or all socialists or all socialist feminists. You get the picture. Also, there are many feminist critiques of capitalism. Given the restrictions of time and my own base of knowledge, I'll only speak to a few of them. With that, Chelsea Follett, our moderator and managing editor of Human Progress, was kind enough to provide some orienting questions for the discussion, which she already said, so I won't repeat them at the front. So the first question, has the spread of capitalism been a net positive or a net negative for women? This is a great question, but it's also a very difficult question to answer, not least because I find it somewhat odd to formulate an equation of human costs that spans centuries of capitalism. Do more recent improvements in life expectancy, literacy, and women's autonomy outweigh the mass slaughter of indigenous women and children, the desperate lives of women trapped and tortured in chattel slavery, the disfigurement and early deaths of women who spent their life toiling at sweatshops, their bodies destroyed by factory work, a difficult calculation to be sure. But if we were to attempt it, we would certainly have to temper the sunny claims of global capitalism's recent successes with the stark reality that more than two billion people suffer globally from malnutrition, that the bottom 60% of people worldwide miss out on 95% of new income from global growth, and that the absolute number of people living in poverty has risen by a billion people over the past few decades. I'm willing to say, in agreement with Marx, that capitalism is better than feudalism. We can also point to data that suggests aggregate progress, for example, toward the fulfillment of the Millennium Development Goals on life expectancy, mortality, education. Middle and upper class women in much of the world enjoy access and rights that would have been the envy of their sisters a century and a half ago. But in celebrating these gains, which we should, we must be cautious about the causal arrows we draw. While some of these gains can be attributed to development and rationalization, both of which are correlated with capitalism, many of these gains are the result of dogged political struggle, not capitalism. Laws and norms against discrimination, the right to not be the property of our husbands, the right to vote, to be able to protect ourselves and our children from domestic violence, and so many other rights were not handed down from on high by the Chamber of Commerce. These rights were won by social movements, many of which were led by socialists and feminists who fought tooth and nail and suffered many defeats on the way to getting them. In this moment, however, I think it's important to look forward, as I said earlier. 
Even if we were to concede that capitalism has been a net gain for women, which I don't, it is much more important to ask whether capitalism will lead to gains in the future. Feminism is not just about eliminating gender-based discrimination. It's about fighting for and creating equality and a good life for everyone, regardless of their sex, gender, race, ethnicity, education, income, religion, and where they live. This is what's great about feminism. It's why I'm a feminist. Simply put, we can't achieve these goals in capitalism. This week is the climate strike, so let's consider the example of climate change. Nothing demonstrates the failure of the so-called free market better than the looming climate catastrophe. While capitalism may be rational for individuals, on a systemic level, it is highly irrational. The reckless pursuit of profit by individual capitalists who have been empowered by elites and governments has created the massive collective problem of global warming, not to mention resource depletion and habitat destruction. But instead of addressing this problem head on, a problem we understood the rough contours of decades ago, for the past 40 years, elites and business owners have insisted on the healing power of free markets. They argue that markets are natural, part of a spontaneous order, that rational individuals operating with perfect information create optical, optimal outcomes, that externalities are trivial. We know what needs to be done, yet the imperatives of profit-making and the entrenched prerogatives of elites have prevented countries from adopting projects and programs to free ourselves from our destructive fossil fuel-based economies, from developing and instituting sustainable solutions to meeting our needs. Only a collective project rooted in solidarity and cooperation and organized around the principle of taking back our planet from rapacious corporations will offer us a fighting chance of altering our current trajectory. Ms. Follett's second question was, is capitalism an inherently exploitative, oppressive, and patriarchal economic system entwined with the subjugation of women? Let's, this par let's parse this out a bit. Is capitalism exploitative? In political economy, exploitation describes a relationship whereby someone sells her labor power to someone else who owns the means of production and makes a profit by paying her, the worker, less than the value of what she produces. So yes, most people, including women, are exploited in the sense that they work for a wage and that they wouldn't be able to buy food or pay the rent without working for a wage. Is this exploitation oppressive? Meaning, does it constitute cruel or unjust treatment? Well, that depends. In the United States, for example, not all women are oppressed. There are feminists and socialists who would balk at this assessment. Nonetheless, I don't think highly paid white women who have respect, security, and autonomy in organizing their work lives are oppressed. Or at least, they're not oppressed for me to get out into the street and fight for them. The problem is that this happy scenario does not describe the situation for most women, either in the United States or globally. A woman working full-time for minimum wage who can't afford to go to the doctor or buy vegetables or pay her rent is oppressed. A college grad drowning in student loan debt working a 60-plus contract gig for a startup that tops up a lousy paycheck with free beer and a foosball table in the break room is oppressed. A good chunk of this oppression is linked to patriarchy, or more precisely, sexism, since we don't live in a formally patriarchal society. The jury is out on whether capitalism is inherently sexist, and sexism certainly exists outside of capitalism. One could imagine a model of capitalism that wasn't sexist or racist for that matter, but capitalism is a real-life way of organizing the norms, priorities, structures, and activities of society that evolves over time and space. As a historical system, sexism and racism have been a core part of strategies of accumulation in capitalism. 
Sexism makes women's unpaid labor in the home, which is essential to society and to our economy, appear to be natural, a labor of love. Sexism and racism also continue to be extremely handy tools in the business owner's toolkit to divide and oppress workers, to discourage demands for better pay and benefits, and efforts to form unions. Okay, the last question. Or has capitalism helped to empower women, enhancing their material well-being and fostering gender parity? Rather than posing our questions and answers as either or, we should opt for a more nuanced both and discussion. As I said earlier, women have been empowered in capitalism. While we should be cautious not to confuse correlation with causation, keeping in mind those lurking variables such as the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the labor movement, and the environmental movement, it is still the case that markets can empower women. Money equals power. If women are lucky enough, and if they're today, you know, they're able to ride on the success of past social movements, if the women are lucky enough to be born to rich parents or be gifted with fantastic abilities or intelligence or any number of other serendipitous happenings that land them in a well-remunerated, well fulfilling job, their ability to earn well will empower them. More than that, it will help them empower others in their networks, such as their own children. But observing that some women are quite empowered in capitalism does not imply that the path has been laid and that if we just follow it, the goals of feminism will be reached. The fabulous wealth of the relative few at the top is not an accident or a harmless peak over a healthy floor of people living a good life. The market-friendly reforms of the past few decades have made a handful of, mostly men, unimaginably wealthy while the vast majority of people has seen their livelihoods stagnate and their opportunities narrow. The incredible technological and scientific advances of the past 40 years could have been channeled toward dramatically improving poverty, healthcare outcomes, and the ecological sustainability of our production processes. It could have been channeled towards ensuring security in the supply and distribution of clean water, nutritious food, and adequate housing. These are things that all people value. These are also things that would greatly empower women who suffered disproportionately from the lack of these things. We have the tools to vastly improve the lives of the world's women, and all people for that matter. Yet we haven't directed our resources, knowledge, or energy toward achieving this goal. Why? Because the goal of capitalism is not a better world. It's to make a profit. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. Uh, now, Veronique will give her opening statements, and there will be a PowerPoint. Hi, thanks for being here. So, does capitalism help or hurt women? I have to admit um, that um, it took me a while to actually uh, be able to really take this question seriously. But then I did a Google search, and when I actually saw the amount of writing about how capitalism was oppressive, I I thought, well, I guess this is, this is a really serious issue. And um, it was hard for me because every aspect of my life um, I owe to the privilege of living to the closest thing to a capitalist regime. I'm educated. I work. I'm a mom. I was able to choose the country where I live. I can choose my religion, I can choose my political affiliation, I can even choose to be a libertarian. And I can make all these life choices without having to depend permanently on a man 
and without the judgment of others. So I'm just one data point, obviously, and one of my life choices is I'm an economist, so I know that one data point is not going to refute the widespread belief that capitalism hurts women. So let's look at this question, and let's define what is capitalism. I mean, there are many different ways to define capitalism, and I will tell you what it means to me. First, capitalism is an economic system, so if you want to actually judge it, you need to look at its economic performances. Um, in an ideal, in its ideal form, capitalism, uh, capital, capitalist system requires a small, small government. Capitalism rests on individual freedom and voluntary consent. That means that you can't uh, tell people and force people to do what they don't want to do. And the same way, uh, they can't force you to do their bidding. Um, but you can, in an ideal capitalist system, you can decide who you want to marry, how you want to raise your children, and you are fully in charge of your reproductive um, choices without having to ask the government for permission. Capitalism requires cooperation, not just competition. And this is something that Friedrich Hayek highlights a lot in his work, that capitalism is good precisely because it lets individuals express themselves creatively and productively through their work and voluntary community. Now, we must ask ourselves whether this is just an ideal, and in fact, capitalism in reality is awful and oppressive. Uh, so let's look at the countries um, that are the most uh, capitalist, as I had just defined them, basically the countries where the government uh, interferes the least in their economic affairs. So by most ranking, uh, the two most capitalist countries are Hong Kong and Singapore, but among the pretty large group, actually, of most capitalist countries, you find countries like the US and Canada and, and, and many others. Um, by historic standard, and even by current world standard, um, these countries are nice, and they're rich, and they have relative poverty, yes, but they have very little absolute Poverty, and this is the reason why so many poor people around the world want to move here, right? Even if it means working in hard work and low-paid jobs. Now, capitalism may be good for a country, but not good for women. So let's look at that question. And I think that historically we can show that capitalism has actually helped women a fair amount. And that's because the free markets which power uh, the capitalist regime, have done much more than any other institutions to empower individual and produce an abundance of new and amazing goods, but also incredible technological innovation for the benefit of all. I mean, I, I cannot overstate the fact that all the benefits, uh, th that we are all the beneficiaries of the gift of innovation. Nobel Prize uh, laureate uh, William Nordhaus um, 
his work shows that actually when you take the, um, the top innovators in the US in the second half of the 20th century, they only captured a mere 2% of the social value that they created with their innovations, right? And they were forced to share 98% through competition and lower prices with us, consumers. I mean, it's a big deal, and it was a big deal. It's been a big deal historically for women. Innovation like urban sanitation and clean and running water and medicines have actually um, uh, increased uh, the quality and the strength uh, of a woman's and the length of a woman's lives. Um, Women, ling but then the next question is like, okay, women live longer and they're they're, they're better health. But what has it done to emancipate them? Well, three things, in my opinion. Uh, innovation don't just save lives. Actually, they reduce the time burden of women's unpaid housework, and that allows. It has allowed them historically to enter the labor force at higher rates. Um, like just to give you an example that I think I learned from you, in 1910, the amount of time women spent preparing food daily was on average of six hours. And today, it's an average of one hour. And it, by the way, it's one hour, whether you're a high-income woman or a low-income woman. And there are so many technical innovation that have actually done this. And what it's done is like actually, it's like it's brought down um, to low-income people uh, just a, a, a lot of goods that used to be at some point only accessible to rich people. The other thing it does is that innovation create income. And um, those innovation uh, basically, uh, historically, increase in income have always, always preceded higher level of education for women. Always. Like, think about it this way. When there are scarce resources, families historically tended to invest in their sons because it seemed like a better investment. When income rised, then they could invest in both. They didn't have to choose. That was extremely empowering for women. The third one is that as capitalism increased, income is also increasing the demand for labor, all labor. And when you think about the fact that innovation reduced the necessity of strength to do work, there were actually a lot of work options that were, um, that were available to win much more, I mean, in a, an increase that was much more impressive than for men. And as soon as women started to be able to secure independent income and support themselves, it means that not being married was not an utter catastrophe like it used to be. And it is still the case for a lot of women today. All these factors explain why has historian Stephen Davis write, the early pioneer feminists were ardent laissez-faire liberals and supporters of capitalist industry. I mean, feminists were not always anti-capitalist. And there, these women were right to put their faith 
in freedom and capitalism. Look, I've put here um, data from the Index of Economic Freedom and the uh, Georgetown University Welfare Index. And as you can see, women in live, who live in countries that are more free have also uh, higher well-being than the ones who live in countries that are economically less free. So it seems pretty clear to me that uh, capitalism is actually a gift to feminism. That said, a lot of uh, women disagree, and a lot of the modern feminists disagree. Where am I? Sorry. They disagree, and, 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 you know, and one of the reasons is because, yes, they can see that the increase of income, uh, the capitalism increased income, but it's also increased uh, income inequality, and that particular thing is actually hurt women the most. So let's take even this for granted and then actually compare. Because I think it's important to not talk in a vacuum and to actually compare American capitalism to its alternative. And let's you know, take the uh, quintessential anti-capitalist um, models. The communist model was its priest, Soviet Russia. And then we'll turn to one of the things, one of the set of countries that feminists uh, tend to point out to show basically heaven on earth and that the Scandinavian Nordic countries. And then we'll compare it to America. So let's start with communism. And right from the bat, let's say we're going to ignore the fact that communist regimes in the 20th century have killed more than 100 million people many of them being women. That's a lot of lives to forget, but supposedly, I am not kidding, this is actually, we are asked to forget about this so we can truly appreciate um, the, um, the advantage of the regime. So okay, so let's do this. Um, so many communist regimes had a higher level of participations for women, that is true, including in high-skill labor, like um, they were astronauts and, and doctors, and they, and they were higher than uh, their capitalist counterparts. Um, so does it mean that it's uh, a sign that communist regimes are better for women? But well, it depends on whether you believe that the most important good for women is a woman in the workplace, independently of the condition. Revisionist accounts usually omit that a communist regime engaged in extreme social engineering. Working was not even an option. And they made a virtue out of working their people to the bone in the service of the state. And for women especially, I mean, it sucked. There's no other way to say it. So as my friend uh, Marion Tupi here at the Cato Institute and many other scholars, and Marion actually grew up under communism, uh, have documented, um, all communist regimes were run by men. And the idea of a fe female leader is unconceivable. In addition, Soviet women had not just to feed the kids, raise the kids, clean the house, shop for food, and all of that stuff, but they were also uh, performing a vast majority, I mean, I'm insisting a vast majority of very physically difficult jobs like highway construction and street cleaning. 
Sure, it is true that the status, the state had expressly emancipated women and mandated equal um, pay for equal work, but uh, yet, you know, the state can declare a lot of things. The government can say it's going to do a lot of things, and it doesn't always turn out like this. In fact, gender gap remained persistent. So what is it that they got that American women didn't get at the time? Well, it wasn't longer lives. Soviet women were expected to die five years you know, earlier than American women, and it was in higher income um, because GDP per capita in the 80s was six to seven times higher in the United States as it was in, um, in Russia. Uh, that's right. It was sex. It was sex. A professor at Penn urges us to stop screaming and I quote, I quote, screaming about Stalin famines and purges, and instead focus on the screaming in the bedroom. She argues that sex behind the iron curtain uh, was better because women viewed themselves as more equal. Um, however, I find her case as flimsy as the drape that probably separated those young women from their mother-in-law because young married women in uh, uh, Soviet Russia had to share tight quarter after they got married with their parents. So let's look at, um, let's look at actually um, Scandinavian countries, which are actually really, I mean, when you... You know, when Nicole talked about young people uh, supportive, a vast majority supporting socialism, um, that's what they talk about. When Senator Bernie Sanders talk about socialism, that's what he talks about. When a lot of, um, of modern feminists talk about, that's what they talk about. They don't talk about Russia. And to be honest, if I were them, I wouldn't talk about Russia either. Um, but um, here's the thing. These countries, those Nordic countries, they're capitalist. They're actually so much more capitalist than they are uh, socialist. In fact, some of them, they rank higher in the index of economic freedom than America does. What is sure of all of them is that as they were heading to the wall, they, were, they realized they had to reform, all of them. And they cut spending, they lower the capital taxes, they facilitated the ability of companies to fire their employees and to hire, by the way, because it goes both ways. Um, they uh, in, in, in introduced some competition uh, for schools, uh, their public schools and, and healthcare system. Uh, they moved higher up in the index of economic freedom, meaning less government. Um, yes, these government, you know, I, I, are still, I still build and big and more importantly, I mean, they are and there's no doubt about this. The Nordic countries are at the forefront of gender equality. And by the way, culturally, they have been for a very, very long time. I mean, they have, the government has implemented all those juicy gender uh, equal entitlement that feminists in America are fighting for and that look fantastic on gender equality indexes. You know, things like paid leave for men and women and generous healthcare um, uh, handout. And it is true that Nordic women, I mean, they actually participate in the labor force more than most countries. Uh, 
part-time, that is. As it turned out, the academic literature shows that broad-based welfare uh, tends to actually give a disincentive to work full-time and encourages part-time work. Also, it, um, it um, causes problems for women to actually reach the top. And, and, and have even access to top jobs. So data from the International Labor Organization, and I think I was supposed to show this, sorry, I'm pretty bad at this, um, show that the share of female manager is 28% in Denmark, 30% in Finland, 32% in Norway, 36% uh, in Sweden. What is it in the US? Uh, oh, I guess it's, it's down there. It's actually 43%, yay. Um, women in the U.S. aren't also just more likely to be manager at a higher rate. They have higher income per capita. They also, as a share, their, their share of women educated is higher than in Nordic countries. Um, and uh, they earn system, uh, they significantly more uh, STEM uh, degrees than uh, women in, in Nordic country. So it's, it's really interesting. And, and there's a whole literature on this. And it's fascinating. And I hope we'll get to it through the, the, the rest of the conversation, which is that there's a contradiction between the goals that this gender neutral policy is trying to achieve and the goal they actually achieve. Um, so that's important. Now, in conclusion, I will say that not everything is perfect at all under any circumstances, and there is so much that could be done better. But the question is, right, the question is, what can we do? And, um, and I will tell you, I mean, I think all capitalist countries could improve dramatically uh, in ways that would actually achieve a lot of the goals that Nicole and I have for women. But here's my top three list for the US. Um, the first one is stop restricting immigration. Working moms who have to cut work at home uh, or simply actually want to go more to work could, could really uh, use hiring people. And we need to cut all those restrictive immigration law, especially for low-skilled workers. That would tremendously help women at, at all levels, and especially low-income women. And by the way, it would tremendously help the lives of low-income women globally who can actually move to the US. The other one I care really about, uh, I mean, I care about all of these, but this one I care tremendously about, and anyone who cares about inequality should care about these two. Stop restricting the supply of housing. Um, State and local government tightly regulate housing constriction, especially in high wage area, making it very difficult for many people to move there. And you can say, okay, what's the big deal like of like rich people paying a lot for moving to a rich area? Well, that's actually not the problem. It's like it actually keeps low-income people from moving to these areas. If we were to deregulate even a little bit by, 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 by you know, moderate standards, um, we would actually get an increase in GDP 
by between anywhere between 2 and 10%, we would get a massive increase in the housing supply, and we, may, we would get a massive immigration uh, from you know, low productivity states and low wage states uh, or areas to high wage area, and we would give access to low income workers to these high labor, high productivity and, and wage markets. That would reduce inequality. My last one, um, you know, obviously I'm at Cato, but also, I mean, I think like the Cato scholars know way more about this issue than I, but uh, we need to reform the hell out of the criminal justice system. Mandatory minimum sentencing, persecution of low-level drug offenders, increased conviction, imprisonment of those with relationship to drug dealers, and the treatment of drug addicts as criminals means the number of incarcerated women has skyrocketed since the 80s. It's not good for women, not to mention the number of fathers who are in jail and the number of mothers who are left raising their children alone. We have plenty to do. There's so much more than this list, so much more than this list. But all in all, capitalism realistically beats all existing alternatives. Unfortunately, too many people take for granted the bounty created by capitalism. I mean, it's because usually, you know, I mean, there are always special interests uh, talking for the government and for, uh, for special favors that they can get, but there's really no one talking, talking about the dispersed greatness produced by capitalism. And this is why our challenge, all of us, is constantly to make capitalism and freedom an exciting undertaking to the next generation. Women have much to gain by our success at building an even freer society. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so now we will hear a five-minute rebuttal from each of our speakers. I believe Vera went a little bit um, over time, so Nicole, if you'd like to take a bit more time with your answer, these time limits will not be strictly enforced. Uh, we're going to keep the same speaker order, so Nicole, please uh, begin okay. your rebuttal. and you'll keep time? Uh, yes, yes. All right. Uh, thank you, Veronique. Lots of uh, material there to respond to. I think um, just first, I think it's important to... Think about capitalism, it is an economic system, it's also a political and social system. It is the system that organizes our global economy. So when we think about um, you know, an ideal capitalist model, that can be very useful. Modeling is extremely useful, but we also have to ground our assessments in a holistic picture of what the global uh, economy or what the sort of uh, organization of states or how, how the picture for women looks uh, globally, we have to think about the big picture, right? So while we can certainly point to um, models that seem to be working uh, very well, you say Singapore, we have to also include states that are also capitalist, uh, where capitalism doesn't seem to be working very well. So as much as Singapore uh, is a model of, of things going well, and I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that, uh, a country like Sierra Leone is, is also a capitalist country, right? A country like Saudi Arabia is also a capitalist country, right? We need to think about not necessarily an ideal uh, capitalism, but real existing capitalism. When I bring up a country like Saudi Arabia, um, also it, it points to the fact that capitalism does not require democracy. 
right? Uh, we often associate capitalism and democracy, and we think about the freedom uh, that working for a wage may give us, um, but the, the gains that women uh, benefit from today Right, were not given to them uh, from the state. They do not sort of automatically come with capitalism. These are gains that, as I said earlier, are the result of many generations of struggle uh, and many failures. Right? These are gains that uh, come only on the back of struggle. And we, many women today, myself included, uh, benefit from these gains, but we cannot see them as sort of a natural emergence that goes along with capitalism. But let's talk about the Soviet Union. Um, because I disagree with you, Veronique, that we should ignore the millions of people or hundreds of millions of people uh, that died uh, as a result of uh, the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. I don't think we should ignore them at all. In fact, I think we should be very clear-headed about the costs of development and the costs of that model, just as we should be very clear-headed about the hundreds of millions of people that have been killed as a result of capitalist development, which I mentioned. Uh, we shouldn't forget these things, and we shouldn't actually uh, forget um, the lessons that we've learned from the failure of the Soviet Union. And I will say that overall, we could say that it was a failure, right? for the main reason that it was not a democratic country, right? People did not have control over their own fates. It was a bureaucratic uh, state that determined how people lived, right? So this was a failure. And we on the left, and feminists in particular, take this failure very seriously, which is why no one is calling for the return of the Soviet Union. However, that doesn't mean that we can't think about building a different kind of society or imagine new models and new ways of organizing society that alleviate some of the very real ills that we experience in our lives. Now, when people, democratic socialists, young people are pointing to uh, Nordic countries, I hope that most of them are aware that those are not socialist countries. I certainly am, and I'm sure Bernie Sanders is. The reason why they point to those countries is because people in those countries, women in those countries, have access to uh, rights that people in the United States do not have, right? It is much easier to get an affordable education in those countries. Healthcare is a right in those countries. These basic things are extremely appealing to young people who are graduating from college with a mountain of debt, moving back in with their parents, working for a job that doesn't pay the bills, and they're worried about whether they can go to the doctor, right? These very basic things are you know, young people are looking at other countries and saying, why can't we have that? I say, those are capitalist countries. Well, yes, they are. They're certainly not uh, free. We wouldn't hold those countries up as uh, examples of the free market working, right? Really, the free market doesn't exist, right? It's a model uh, that exists only in our mind. As long as capitalism has existed, as long as it has been the primary organizing model for the global economy, it is a regulated mark. It is a regulated system, right? The question is not whether states are regulating capitalism. It's whose benefit are they regulating capitalism for? And this is really what we should be asking ourselves. When we think about the free market as a natural sort of uh, system that emerges out of nature, then it becomes something that we can't question, right? It's the same way that we say, well, we already tried something else with the Soviet Union and it failed. 
That makes it uh, so that we can't actually question what does the, the distribution of wealth in our society look like? What does the distribution of resources look like? Right? Now we say, well, you know what, if we get rid of capitalism, uh, well, we won't be able to have um, any of the innovations that are so important to us. And the free market uh, is, is what has given us all of these innovations, like clean water um, and you know, technology and, 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 and you know, transportation uh, and just the healthy economy that we have. Hi, you're a little bit over, but please finish your thoughts. Okay, I'll finish just on this point. Uh, certainly anyone who has looked at the history of innovation in the United States recognizes that the things say, pick up your iPhone, okay? The technology that's embedded in your iPhone is not a result of free markets. It is a result of a public-private partnership. Much of that research was conducted in universities with funding from the federal government, right? That doesn't mean that there's no place for the market. I don't think that we should ever develop a society that has no market. That's a really silly idea. However, when we think about you know, the things that make our lives better, we really need to take seriously the, the limitations of the free market and allowing us to achieve that. Thank you, Nicole. Now we will uh, move to the rebuttal by Veronique. So, um, thanks. Um, so, I, I think that one of the reasons why um, sometime we may be talking past each other is because, I mean, I'm an economist, so I, you know, I, I look at data and I look at trend and, and I look at things like this. So um, first I'd like to point out that a lot of the things that Nicole, that you pointed out about the crisis of capitalism and uh, such as like the uh, monetary policy of loose money and the stimulus and the bailout and all of that thing, that to me is not capitalism. That is actually the opposite of capitalism. Um, and, and so I, I guess we, we, we disagree on that point. It's like in, 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 in all the examples that you have given, I actually see a failure of the government in that the government is actually interfering with the market. That said, I will concede that there are a ton of businesses who are in the business of demanding spatial favor from the government, this, monetary, this loose monetary policy. I mean, look at how jumpy and happy the stock market is when uh, there's, there's an announcement that probably the Fed is going to uh, inject, uh, inject a sugar boost into the economy. And it's just crazy because it's no, not going to resolve things in the long run. So there's a lot of crony capitalism. There's a lot of businesses that are in bed, but that unhealthy marriage between government and big business is actually wouldn't exist without the government. You know, it's the existence of the government, and I'm not even in favor of like anarchy, but let's face it, it's the existence of the government and its ability to distribute government-granted uh, privileges to those companies that actually trigger a whole lot of bad policy decisions. That's cronyism, and it's, it's not capitalism. The other thing is like you talked about, uh, you talked about, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the 
portion of people living in poverty. I mean, again, not my area of expertise, but as far as I know, I mean, the, the proportion of people globally living in po poverty is at an all-time low. I mean, the, 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 the number may be high in nominal terms, but as a share, which is really what matters to measure progress, it's never enough. I mean, we should never rest until that number is as low as it can be. But it's actually, it seems to be, and you guys report this as human progress all the time, that there's a lot to celebrate. Um, I'd like to point out that um, the number of American workers that work at minimum wage is 3.9%. Is so, I mean, it's not a huge amount. Uh, and when we talk about, uh, it seems that your definition of capitalism being exploitative, uh, meaning that people have to be forced to work for a certain price, is actually kind of assuming that they have no freedom to go look for work elsewhere. And uh, I will grant that when the economy is not doing well, the bargaining power is on the side of the employee and it's harder to make moves. But when the economy does pretty well, actually it goes the other way. This is why when the economy is growing, you see wages growing. Um, not necessarily very fast because it takes, it takes quite a while for capital investment to make their way through the economy to be uh, turned into higher productive workers and higher wages. Uh, but but I, I, I think it's like a weird vision of what exploitation mean. Now, I mean, it, because I mean, it, it, it is true that employer, employees can go and ask and demand to be paid a certain price to, by, uh, to, their, to ask their employers to pay them a certain price, but the truth- We're out of time, but please okay. finish your thought. Okay, so I'll finish, is, um, is, is that the reverse is true. Uh, and I will point this last thing, which is, by the way, that uh, as respect to wages I mean the, uh, and, and total compensation, I mean, the academic research shows that actually total compensation is actually rising uh, in, in pair with productivity. So it seems that actually that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, there's not a big disparity in terms of employees being abused by employers. Thank you. All right, now they will move into... Uh, shorter three-minute rebuttals with closing statements. We will start with Nicole. I think Veronique and I are both chafing against our time limits. Uh, I'll see what I can say in three minutes. Uh, first, crony, crony capitalism is capitalism. We live in a capitalist country and a, the global economy is capitalist, right? We might not like the way it works, uh, but we, this is capitalism. Now, uh, we say, well, perhaps we can root out crony capitalism. Uh, and I'm against crony capitalism, I think, as, as much as you are, Veronique. Certainly, uh, if we look at the past 40 years, we see uh, a very steady trend of big business using their power uh, to uh, get legislation passed uh, and to change policies for their own benefit. This is uh, partly why we are in the crisis that we're in today, why people have lost faith in the government, because both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are guilty of participating in crony capitalism. Now, can we actually root this out? No, because there's a fundamental disparity of power written into the, the DNA of capitalism, which is that if you are 
able to own the means of production, if you are able to control production, you have more power than someone who is forced to work for a wage and is born to poor parents, and your only option is to try to make your way that way. That is, that is true. So we will always see the powerful using uh, the wealthy, the wealthy, excuse me, using their power to manipulate government to their own benefit. That is certainly true. And as we both agree, we'll, we will not be getting rid of government. Uh, so this is something to fight against, but it's certainly uh, part of capitalism. Uh, the question of you know, whether people in the United States, whether workers are doing better, if, if their livelihoods are keeping up with productivity gains. Uh, one, one statistic that really sticks out to me uh, is the fact that 40% of Americans would be unable to raise $400, uh, which is not a large amount of money. Uh, but this really says to me something about how our economy is working and how it's working for some of the population, but not others. You're at time, but please feel free again. As always, to finish your thought. Uh, and just a quick, I guess we can go over this in, yeah, okay. If, if people want to ask about um, global poverty in the Q&A, we could talk about that there. Thank you. Now for the closing statements and final rebuttal of Veronique. So, I mean, I, I wanna say Sierra Leone and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, not part of the club of the most capitalist country. In fact, they rate really, really, really low because economic freedom is pretty, is terribly bad there. So I think they're like terrible examples um, of, uh, I mean, I will reiterate that as much as I despise um, the uh, uh, crony, cronyism, I actually really think that if we prevented if we, if we found a way to make it impossible for the government to grant these privileges, it wouldn't happen. Uh, I think that this fear of concentrated power is one that is perennial. Uh, it has been said about all the big companies before that are not with us anymore, that innovation is one of those ways that actually that destruct the powers, the economic powers that be for the best. Now they are concerned. We can have concerns, right? But um, and and but I, I have a hard time being that this time um, things um, are different. And um, and uh, I mean, I, I just kind of I don't know how much uh, how much how much time um, like a minute um, uh, I have. But I, I mean, I'd say also. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that we have to look at really realistic, uh, realistic alternatives to the system we have. And this system is certainly not uh, uh, perfect uh, by any stretch of imagination. But the truth of the matter is that a lot of the government, super pro-government proposal that I hear put forward in the media by you know, very reasonable people uh, uh, and less reasonable people very often omit the fact, first, that the lot of the distortion that are created right now and that we blame capitalism for are actually the result of government intervention. And that actually there are a lot of places, including Nordic countries, this is why they're so interesting to look at, where actually all those gender neutral uh, policies that are supposed to be actually promoting 
women entering the labor force and closing the labor the the wage gap um, is actually not working. It is actually is it, is it I'm done 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 okay. We can talk about the wage gap, by the way. I'd love questions about the wage gap. Okay, so we already have some ideas for questions from the audience. Global poverty, the wage gap. Uh, but before we go to Q&A from all of you, I would like to give both of our speakers the opportunity to each ask the other one question and give a short response. And Nicole, would you like to start us off again? Forgot about that. All right. Um, Veronique, uh, how do you think women globally should deal with climate change? How should they, how should they um, organize and sort of strategize uh, to deal with climate change? So, um, sorry, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna show the limitation of my uh, expertise, which is that, I mean, it's first, Climate change is not my, my expertise, but also I don't see how it's particularly a woman problem and it has much to do about women issue. That said, uh, from everything I have read and conversations I've had with a lot of my friends who are entrepreneurs, like there's are amazing innovations that are actually taking place in the realm of actually finding biodegradable plastics. And, and, and there are a lot of like really innovative, young, uh, uh, scrappy companies that are trying to actually think about how you take the, 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 the carbon in the atmosphere and put it at the bottom of the ocean. I don't think it is an issue uh, uh, it's an issue for for all of us to think of it, but I actually think that the more we let innovator innovate and we actually keep the government away from deciding which science or which, not science, but which technology is going to be the prime technology by giving that technology a leg up and hence creating disincentive for other in technology to come in, I think that's actually an important thing to do. Thank uh, you. And what will be your uh, question? Well, I guess I, I mean, I, uh, I would ask you, uh, Nicole, about, and I find it very disturbing that I can't look at you, no, I have I keep, to say. Design wise, <laughs> Cato. Um, I, I would want to know, uh, I mean, what do you think uh, should be done to prevent uh, what you describe as the exploitation of women in America. Just how, how long do I have to answer that question? Well, we, we said about two minutes. Give me like a top, the top. Um, this is something that I have thought about a lot. And I think, you know, obviously uh, avoiding kind of pie in the sky. And I know, Chelsea, you, uh, you hate utopian uh, sentiments. Uh, but to avoid a kind of pie in the sky, um, you know, cook shop, kind of discussions, I think that a very practical way of improving the lives of women in the United States, let's keep it here, uh, is actually to give women and to pull out of the, the kind of market uh, the, the, the elements of a good life, right? So to give women actually access to healthcare, right? To give them access to childcare, to give young women access to affordable higher education, to give women access to housing, right? If they're trying to escape a, a violent domestic partner, to know that they won't be out on the street. These very basic things, right, which are eminently achievable, would make women's lives immeasurably better in the United States. 
So who should do that? The civil society or the government? Um, no, 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 please. No, We're going to audience Q&A now. Questions. Sorry. Uh, because you Sorry. didn't ask a follow-up. Um, so audience Q&A time. Please uh, wait to be called upon. We have microphones coming toward you now to ensure that everyone will be able to hear you, both in this auditorium and to make sure our online audience will be able to hear you. Uh, when you are called upon and given a microphone, Please uh, state your name and affiliation if you have one. That would be most welcome before uh, stating your question. And please try to keep your questions relatively succinct so that we can get to as many questions as possible. And uh, do please also ask your questions in the form of a question rather than uh, you know, a monologue. All right, so uh, hands. Uh, let's go to the lady up front. Hi, my name is uh, my name is Netra Halpern with Peace Films. So my question, um, Nicole, is uh, to respond to Veronique's uh, idea about increasing immigration such that women can come over and be domestics for American women. So how do you feel? Yeah, is that a, a switch, moving poverty from one to another, et cetera? Like, how does that relate women in America, women that are immigrating here? Thank you. So are we going to take multiple, just one at a time? Okay. Uh, that's a great question, actually. I was planning to respond to that, and then I didn't. Uh, the question of immigration is a tricky one, uh, particularly because, uh, you know, many women who come to the United States, right, uh, let's say they come uh, as a nanny, right, and uh, women who come from the Philippines. Many of these women are uh, extremely educated, uh, yet... Uh, in the United States, they can actually earn more as, as a domestic worker than they can working as a teacher, right, or, or as, a, as a government worker in the Philippines, which uh, is itself a, a tragedy. But many women come to the United States and they, they are finding themselves in extremely oppressive situations working uh, as domestic servants, as nannies uh, in households, and they don't have a lot of uh, freedom to actually move out of this and make a life for themselves here. Right, so I don't think that women here should be relying on the ability to, to underpay a woman, right, to watch their children for 60 hours a week so that they may, uh, you know, succeed in their, in their own uh, job, right? I think if we're really going to be thinking about all women, we have to demand uh, basic rights uh, and, a, and a minimum wage that really can provide a good life for everyone, including uh, undocumented people who come here and, and women who are working kind of in these hidden spheres, particularly in the example of domestic work. Okay, other questions? Um, let's go with uh, the gentleman toward the front. Thank you very much. I also have a question for Dr. Ashraf. Um, I would like to hear your thoughts on global poverty. Uh, as you said, I, I agree that we shouldn't use the first world gains to judge the benefits of capitalism, but the bottom billion as well. So as Dr. Darugi pointed out, there are clear gains uh, for the global poverty in a proportional sense, and I want to hear your thoughts on that. I think that if we're going to talk about uh, global poverty, we have to first acknowledge that uh, we need a nuanced discussion, and we need to look carefully at the 
the data that's being used to uh, paint a picture of this sort of dramatic decrease in global poverty. Right now, the measure that's being used is, I believe it's $1.90 a day. Uh, and if you're living above $1.90 a day globally, you are considered to not be living in extreme poverty. Uh, most experts, and I am not an expert on uh, global development, uh, but most experts would agree that that is a ridiculously no low and basically useless number. Now, if uh, uh, some scholars have pointed to the number of about $7 or $8 a day as a much more accurate uh, sort of number to really assess. So you could, if you're living, uh, if you're making $7 or $8 a day, uh, you can achieve a normal life expectancy. Uh, you see normal levels of, of infant mortality at that rate. Under that, you're seeing uh, massive malnutrition. Uh, you're seeing people not being able to uh, actually ingest enough calories to, to engage in normal activity. Uh, so when we look at this number, right, about seven to eight dollars a day, we do actually see still a slight decrease uh, in the proportion of people living in poverty. Uh, but we do also see an absolute increase in the number of people living in poverty. Those two are a little bit weird, but they do fit together. Now, when we think about, all right, well, we've seen this decrease, that's good, and we should celebrate that. And it's also, you know, actually the, 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 PPP data is not the only indication of poverty. This could be a very long argument, so I'm just going to keep my answer short to say that uh, we have the, the tools and the wealth to achieve a much greater reduction in poverty than we have seen in the, in the, in the past couple decades. It's really actually disappointing, uh, the type of poverty that we still see, right? The fact that we still see over two billion, two billion people who are malnourished, two billion people who don't have access to clean water in their home. These very basic things uh, have not been achieved, right? So if we're going to be um, praising the successes of global capitalism, we should really take these kinds of numbers uh, and keep them in mind. Okay, she got her question on global poverty. Maybe we'll also get a wage gap question. Uh, let's go with uh, the lady with the uh, red hair. Hi, um, I'm Kat Murthy. I work here at the Cato Institute. I'm also the co-founder of Feminists for Liberty. Uh, this might go slightly against the idea of debate. However, you both share some goals when it comes to uh, greater women's equality in the world. I'm curious where you see overlaps between your arguments or what you would consider uh, positive points that the other one has made or could make. Great question. Uh, maybe, Veronique, you want to start since uh, Nicole has had the last two questions? Um, we definitely share um, the goal of improving everyone's lives and women, I mean, around the world. That's, there's absolutely no doubt about this. I really appreciate actually that Nicole is not, uh, is, is actually quite, quite reasonable um, and, and is not uh, proposing a lot of pie in the sky type of things. Um, but I think fundamentally the problem that keeps us apart is that, um, is, is, is a fundamental one, which is why they're not more overlaps that they should be, is that um, I would say that in places where there's still a lot of poverty and it's heartbreaking and, and hopefully it will change, and is the fact that the institution that actually power free market economies have not been adopted at all. Uh, 
yet. And, and that is uh, it's just incredibly sad and usually is because these countries suffer from you know, governments that are abusive and, and, um, and destructive towards their own population. And, and unfortunately, solutions like foreign aids have done very little. First, a lot of the foreign aid is actually spent in the US uh, and, and go in the pocket of experts. Um, so I think that's the problem is like fundamentally we look at the world where things are still bad and we don't see the same thing. But otherwise we definitely absolutely share the same goals. And, and I, I mean, you share the same goal. I mean, this is what uh, human progress is about, is actually looking at uh, the place where there's this immense gains that have been uh, accomplished and where it's still lacking. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of overlap. You know, on, I think clearly we both are strong advocates for reproductive rights for absolute wage parity, for the equal access to all of the institutions uh, that are fundamentally part of society, right? So women should have equal access to education. Uh, but also, and I, I think, uh, Veronique, I'm not sure if you agree on this, but certainly, um, you know, looking hard at the sort of pathways to power and how these pathways are, are often blocked to women. You say 43% of managers in the United States uh, are women, and I wonder if that has more to do with sort of the way managers are classified uh, rather than women actually being in positions of power. Certainly, if you look at um, you know executive boards, uh, women uh, sit have have very few places on these. If you look at uh, global heads of state, right, uh, I think about ninety percent of global heads of state are men, right. So I think we're both in agreement that we want to see women taking power. It's just a question of sort of uh, whether that's uh, a sufficient strategy, right? Whether getting rid of gender-based discrimination is enough to actually achieve the goals of feminism. I think that's what, where we differ. Can I add something? Um, sure. So on the uh, on the the. So the, the board thing, it is actually worth uh, saying that this is a problem that common to every country, right? But the S&P 500 in the last, I think two months actually finally reached a point and they are like American, to be added, you have to be an American company. It's like 100% of the companies listed there have a woman on their board. Now it's still a minority, but there are actually a lot of uh, reasons that explain this. There was a there was a global survey of uh, CEO and 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 um, and board, and one of the reasons is um, one of the many reasons, and it goes to actually the the the, the paid um, the paid gap. It, it goes to a lot of choices that women make themselves. They, they make education choices that they make, and they're not bad choices or, or priorities that they have. Or also a, a, an age gap. Let's not remember that to get on a board, usually the average age is 60 to 65. And I mean, it's only in the last, what, 30 years that women have actually really started to be empowered in the way that they actually make the professional choices that actually would get them eventually when they're 60 to those powers. So I think there is hope because it's not just a problem in America, a problem if you see it as a problem. I see it as a problem as if there's discrimination against women, but actually I think there is, there are cultural elements for sure 
And I think there's no um, there's no better way to fight them to have women that are independent, uh, you know, independent and powerful. And women start business at a higher rate than Americans in the U.S. And then almost 26 percent of, of women they are women owner, and it's actually quite high. I mean, it's certainly higher than all the Nordic countries, and 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 with the exception of Italy, which is interesting, of all the European countries. So things are changing. It takes time. It takes time to, to change culture. But it's going also to require that women want to make different choices. And, you know, and that's their choice. Okay, we have time for a couple more questions. Let's, let's uh, get some people in the uh, back. Center back, gentlemen in the tie. Hi, uh, JJ Rich with Reason Foundation, and I'm curious about what ideal um, capitalism and ideal socialism would do about prostitution, and why is that better for women? Do either of you who, want to who start? are you asking that? Are you asking both of us? Uh, he, he said ideal capitalism and ideal socialism, so I think it's to both of you. Um, you know, I'm very wary of sort of. Uh, sort of making a big statement about prostitution. Um, I think that in an ideal society, uh, women would have the not only the freedom, but also the resources to choose how they want to live their life uh, and to really have a meaningful choice, right? To, to not just have formal choice. Um, and in that, uh, you know, society... If women choose to engage in sex work as their profession, uh, they should be protected and, and given the resources to make that um, a career that is, is not a dangerous career. Now, this is, a, this is not a topic that I'm super comfortable talking about because um, I'm a bit ambivalent. There are a lot of very good feminist arguments against prostitution, and I don't really want to sort of weigh in on them here. Um, but I'm certainly not going to stand up here uh, and say it must be one way or the other. My main point is simply that uh, women can make their own choices and that we need to provide them with the resources to make meaningful choices in, in directing their lives. Thank you. Uh, I am... Um I think that uh, they show that as income increase in a particular country, fewer and fewer women actually decide to engage in prostitution. And, you know, I just, um, I mean, obviously I hope that this is not a life choice that my children will make. And I actually think that they are very, very lucky that they would never have to make this choice. And that said, I would never want a system where, um, you know, if this is the only option for anyone as, as, Appalling. I mean, I'm like you. I just have really, you know, I mean, I just really don't hope this for anyone. But um, this, I, I also don't want to do anything that would actually prevent, um, you know, sometimes the only means of subsistence for some women. And so that's it. Thank you. A lady? Um, yes, sure. Let's go for the lady in the back. With the ponytail. Half ponytail. Or half ponytail. <laughs> Let's be specific. Uh, hello, Regan Farrell. I work here at the Cato Institute. 
Um, I'd like to discuss the relationship of women to sustainable living regarding um, such topics as maybe reusable menstrual products or a rise in thrifting fashion at consignment stores. Could you speak to whether this entanglement of women and environmentally forward ideas is a product of capitalist innovation and choice or um, more like socially, um, socialist and environmental activism? Okay, sustainable innovations for women, a product of capitalism or socialism? Are you asking me? Uh, or both of us? Okay, <laughs> I feel like I keep asking that question. Um, well, we don't live in socialism, uh, so uh, we could say whether these women are inspired by socialist ideals. I actually don't know a lot about this topic. Probably you know a lot more than me. Um, I think that certainly if we think about, um, you know, the idea of developing sustainable products. As I said earlier, I think that there's always a space for markets and innovation comes both from, you know, sort of this idea of free markets, but it also comes from research that comes out of public institutions. And it also comes out of sort of collective knowledge, right? That's, that's developed in communities, right? There are many sources uh, for ideas and innovation. It's hard to sort of pinpoint, well, this could be coming from, you know, uh, Cato Institute, and this could be coming uh, from, you know, a sort of more community-minded uh, sort of cooperative movement. Um, that said, I think that um, this is part of kind of a broader uh, trend, and, you know, sometimes I pejoratively call it lifestyle, po lifestyle politics, uh, but I think it's part of a broader trend of people trying to take back control of their lives, particularly women. So I, I think it's great, and it should be applauded, and we should think about how to actually empower people, you know, to implement these changes in their communities. Veronique? I mean, I don't really have much thought of, on, but I think their existence and I mean is is a product of capitalism and 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 actually, you know, in capitalist society, even though people don't realize, I mean, they really are constantly looking at ways to better the world, better themselves. Um, they're like it's it's actually can be it can be a very grinding world, but it can be a very idealist world too. And, and if you let free people for free to actually try to uh, do and pursue their dreams um, and, and create new products, you know, I mean, that's, that's capitalism. Okay, more questions. Um, let's go for the, uh, the blonde lady in the center. Hello, my name is Kimberly Murphy. I'm an interested citizen. Um, so my question is for Dr. Ashcroft. Um, I'd be curious to understand what your position would be on the role of microfinancing in terms of helping to combat global poverty. That's a great question. Um, I think that there was a lot of hope uh, and excitement initially about microfinance as a way uh, to empower women in particular, um, particularly in the global south and developing countries like India. Uh, however, unfortunately, I think the data as it has shown over the past decade is that microfinance is not uh, nearly as um, successful uh, or um, sort of uplifting as people originally hoped. And one of the, there are a few reasons why. Uh, one of the reasons why is that it's often um, sort of uh, pushed onto and, and, and really, uh, you know, sort of 
advocated in, in communities where a lot of women are encouraged to take out these loans, which many of them have very high interest rates, uh, to sell things like soap, for example, in their community. What you immediately see uh, is, is a crowding out, right? Because the problem is not that there are too many um, there are too few, excuse me, there are too few entrepreneurs in the local market, right? It's that there isn't actually enough demand to support these schemes. So you see, not only that, the kinds of structures of microfinance often are very draconian, so that women who are unable to sell their wares and are unable to pay back their loans are shunned in their community, and it actually, because of the structure of the loans, it hurts everyone in the community, because it's this idea that Social pressure will, uh, you know, encourage or force women to pay back their loans. The negative of that is if they're not actually able to sell their products, then they're in an even worse situation than they were before. So I'm actually not an advocate of microfinance at all. Thank you. More questions. Um, uh, gentleman in the back with uh, the beard. Um. So I had a question for uh, Veronique Derugi. Um, so I'm a capitalist, but I kind of want to play devil's advocate a little bit because I had a few concerns about some of the arguments that you were making. Um, so it seems as though your argument demonstrates that capitalism has made women wealthier and more independent, but it hasn't really demonstrated that that's better for women. Uh, with women pursuing high, higher salaries and independence from a patriarchal system, uh, they're nowadays less likely to get married and have children more likely to engage in the hookup culture and just decide to build a career. Uh, child, uh, childlessness among older people and the hookup culture are both strongly correlated with higher rates of depression, loneliness, and mental health problems. So does your conclusion suggest that capitalism uh, would align women with the good, or could it suggest that it aligns them with greed, lust, pride, and eventually depression? Well, so the question is how many... Uh... I, th I think it's about capitalism leading to hedonism and uh, that the effect on women? <laughs> That's a pro well, I mean, they decide what to do, and I think that's a plus. I mean, we have to always look at what the alternative is when women used to, women used to have zero option, but first, to have you know, as many kids as they were going to have uh, without being able to prevent them, but also being, having to be attached to a man and never make any career choices. Um, so um, you know, making more money has meant independence. Yeah, it has meant that some women decided to not have children or to delay having children. But I mean, these are choices. And it's not like every woman every woman and um and and i'm just kind of i like some people make mistakes and regret them that's like there's no system that ever prevents a mistake from being made but i think a, a woman that a, a, a system of freedom actually really um kind of allows people there's not a one size fit all not everyone is the same not everyone has the same dream not everyone wants the same family not everyone wants to be married i mean a lot of people do and a lot of people still do um and and by the way uh not everyone wants to be married to a person of the opposite sex um and so i think if you allow the more freedom 
possible, people are more likely to do the thing that works the best for them. It doesn't mean that it always work out, and it doesn't mean um, that people don't make mistakes. But I think this system beats the alternative, ultimately. Thank you. We can do one last question. Let's go with um, up front, the gentleman in the suit. So there's a, an issue that was seems to me obvious, and it was alluded to, but it wasn't mentioned much beyond an illusion by anyone, and that is the, the pay gap, supposedly, and the supposed pay oh, gap. You get gap your wage gap question. Veronique mentioned it, but no one really talked about it. And so uh, what's the reality of it? Is this an indictment of capitalist society? How, do, how, how is it explained? What do the panelists have to say about that? Do you, it looks like this is for wanna, both of you. Do you have a preference? Do you want to start? Sure. Uh, well, if you if you look at the pay gap, it's declining, particularly for uh, younger people. The the pay gap has narrowed down to about uh, five percentage points, which is great. We should celebrate that. Um, but again, the point of feminism is not just to eliminate gender-based discrimination. If we have women who are making as much as men, that's great. But a woman CEO is still going to be making several hundred times more uh, than a female uh, average wage worker at a company, and that is not great. Um, so, well, I could comment about this, but I will, um, I, I, I will say this. I mean, I think the important things to know, I guess, about the pay gap is like actually, uh, when you compare women and men doing the same jobs, uh, working the same hours, uh, having the same level of education, you realize that the pay gap is actually quite small, and more importantly, and really actually kind of uplifting, is that when you uh, look at the work of, you know, a woman, very respected uh, liberal economist, um, Claudia Golden at, at Harvard, I mean, what you find out that this gap that exists um, is not the product of discrimination, and that is great news. What it is, is what she calls uh, women making the choice of having a need for temporal flexibility. That's what she calls it. It's pretty much is women making the choice and deciding um, that they want to take care of their children and, uh, and, and, and making career choices. And you see this actually with a survey on, for CEOs. Um, um, that making the choice of uh, basically instead of becoming the partner, you know, the killer partner at a law firm, they they are in counsel, so they have more flexibility, um, and so we can lament this fact, but actually I think it's women's choice and until we change biology and culture and you have to, I mean, I think these are choices that are gonna persist. And the thing that's actually really important to remember is actually countries that have tried. I mean, that, that, so basically the pay gap that actually exists is really one, it's a divide between women who work and men and, and non-moms. Basically, that's the divide that exists. And uh, that divide exists absolutely everywhere. And the academic literature shows that actually it's as big or larger in countries that have big spending on social welfare. And so um, the thing that's interesting to think about in the pursuit of gender equality, especially for pay and, you know, paid leave and things like this, is like actually they just don't address this question. It just 
they, it, it, these policies, I mean, they may be satisfying at some level because, you know, we feel we're doing something for women, but it's not going to do anything for the pay gap that remains. Okay, so um, before we thank both of our guests, just some quick notes now that we're out of time for questions. The reception uh, with drinks will be held in the Winter Garden outside. Uh, restrooms are located on this level to the left of the elevators and on the lower level. Uh, just turn left when you reach the bottom of the stairs. The restrooms will be down the hallway on your right. Uh, now let's uh, give our debaters a round of applause. This has been great. Thank you so much.